because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Today, I'm bringing on a guest uh, I'm very excited about to discuss an issue that to me is just about the most important issue today. And it's really an answer to the question, what would a truly American response to this coronavirus look like? I think that many Americans, and I certainly include myself in this category, have the sense that there's something un-American about the dominant governmental response to this coronavirus. And so here, here's my summary of, of what's happened. Basically, there was an initial period where states and the federal government seemed to largely deny the significance of this virus, but then very quickly shifted into compelling people to stay in their homes indefinitely, with the exception of you can run or frequent what are considered essential businesses. And the assumption behind all of this seems to be that that the government's role is to use as much coercive power as it deems necessary to minimize the spread of this coronavirus. And there's something that is not American about that, that the government really just has this unlimited uh, power. And there was this debate last week where the president said that he had absolute power over the states, and then the states seemed to say, like, no, we have absolute power, but there's just a lot of talk of absolute power. And then there has been a bunch of pushback lately against what are called the lockdowns, and I think of that as a good thing. But one thing I've noticed about the pushback is that the pushback isn't really talking about freedom or rights very much. The, the main argument against the lockdowns or for what they call reopening America is that the total harm from these lockdowns may be more than the total harm that are being prevented by the lockdown. So we need to stop the lockdowns or amend them or wean ourselves off of them. But it's a very kind of collective view. It doesn't sound like something the founding fathers would say. And the assumption here seems to be similar to what I said before, but it's, it's the government's role is to use as much coercive power as it deems necessary to minimize the spread of COVID-19, but so long as it doesn't do more collective harm than good. So it seems like the role of the government is just to decide what's the total good for the most people, and then it has essentially absolute power to do whatever it wants. And that definitely doesn't seem like an American uh, idea. So one thing I've noticed and pointed out on this show is that there's not much value being ascribed to freedom, to rights. And I think often the assumption is that freedom and rights are kind of nice to have. They, they might work in normal times, but when there's a dangerous infectious disease on the loose, we can't uh, afford them. Basically, and I, I completely disagree with this. I think that freedom and rights properly understood are crucial to dealing with this disease in a way that gives individuals the greatest possible chance of what I would call flourishing, making the most of their lives in a difficult situation. So I've been very interested in the question of what would a different approach to this virus look like? What would a truly American freedom-based approach to this virus look like? If, if instead of saying, hey, we need to abandon what makes us American, we need to be more like China, what if we said we need to double down on more of what makes us American? And, and what would that look like in response to the virus? 
And to answer that question, uh, I think the best person I could find is uh, someone named Ankar Gatte. Those of you who have listened to this show for many years might know that he was the third ever uh, guest on Power Hour. He was actually on Power Hour exactly nine years ago, if you can uh, believe that. And Ankar has, he's the senior fellow, he's a senior fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute, and he has a lot of wisdom on a lot of things. He's helped me a lot with my thinking on energy and environmental issues. And he was saying some really insightful things about how government should respond to this coronavirus, what an American response uh, would be like. And uh, I had some conversations with them, and I thought this is a perspective that we really need to hear. So, um, Ankar, welcome to Power Hour. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me on again. Nine years later. Yeah, nine. Yeah, uh, so nine years. Yeah, nine years uh, later. I'll tell the story sometime of that first one. It was a very that that episode really changed my thinking. Uh, on a lot of, of things. So I've I've talked about how the assumed role of government today is to use as much coercive power as it deems necessary to minimize the spread of the coronavirus. And so I want to start out with a broad question for you, which is, what do you think is the proper role of government in America for this coronavirus, but more broadly for infectious diseases, which seems to be the thing people think a, fr a free rights protecting government can't really handle very well. Um, yeah. So if we're, if we're taking seriously the American conception of government, that what its function is, as the declaration puts it, is to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. There's a real question. If you're thinking just about disease, what's the role of government there? If you're thinking of cancer rates or something like that, it's I don't think there's any coercive role for the government. You have to for the government to enter. You have to manage your illnesses, you have to think about like diet, exercise, what's relevant for cancer. So it's particularly the issue of infectious disease that there's a question then, um, is there a role for government here? And I think there is, there's a coercive role, but you have to think it's coercive power would be directed towards the carrier of the infectious disease. So if you have an infectious disease that rises, I think, to a certain level, we can talk about the threshold and thinking of what that level is, but it's a certain level where when transmitting it to other people, you're doing them real damage. And so just as you can't go around punching them in the nose, you can't like unsuspecting someone on the sidewalk, you up and punch in the nose. That's a violation of their rights. So if you walk by them and give them an infectious disease in the process, that's also a violation of their rights. But the coercive power would be directed not towards the population at large. It would have to be directed towards the carrier of infectious disease, which would mean that the government has to think about how do we test for this um, when we have suspicion that someone might be carrying an infectious disease, and then how do we isolate that person? And maybe even if he's been exposed to some other people, how do we quarantine? those people. But I think that's the basic role that government would have with regard to infectious disease. If what it's thinking about is the rights of every individual and how do we secure and protect those. And we can talk about some of the details of that if you want. Yeah. And so it, it, it seems like a big part of this is for the government to use its coercive power. It, ha it has to have some specific evidence that you're doing something wrong. And an example I thought of is even if you think of something like the worst kind of thing like murder, 
uh, in order to stop murder, you have to have evidence that somebody is trying to murder. Uh, but you could say, well, I'm going to stop all murders by locking everyone down in their homes because I know that there are going to be a certain number of murderers. And so if we lock everyone in their homes, we'll at least prevent, you know, murderers, uh, murders outside the home. And yet in the American... There, yeah, go ahead. There are such things. Like I lived, when I was a kid, I lived in Ethiopia, which was still under basically communist rule. There was a curfew from 11 a.m. to 6 uh, sorry, 11 p.m. to 6 a.m., I think, or 6 or 7, something like that. And were there fewer murders when there was a curfew? Yes. But is that if you're taking freedom seriously, that everyone's locked in their house and that you literally heard machine gunfire at night sometimes, that if someone stepped out of their home? Um, yeah, you can prevent some crime doing that. It doesn't mean it's compatible with people's freedom or rights, or that it's a good thing to do that. Yeah, so I just want to emphasize that part of the, the American idea is that the government needs specific evidence that you're doing something wrong, not just something theoretically could happen that anyone could do, uh, but it has to be there's some specific uh, evidence uh, about you. Now, just one other aspect, and because what I want to do uh, in a minute is I want to jump into what would a, a more rights-protecting government do you know, before the outbreak, when it started and once it spread. I want to talk about that, but just one other aspect I want to ask about at the outset in terms of rights. So you're talking about rights in terms of when does the government intervene? When is it a violation of rights? But could you just also speak to the role of rights in both producers producing better treatments for this kind of thing and also for individuals making the best possible decisions for themselves about how to mitigate and manage it. Well, that's part of the reason I brought up the issue. If it wasn't infectious disease, if you think of it just as cancer and cancer rates are going up, something like that, and there are for some cancers, I think most cancers are going down, but something like colon cancer, they're worried about rates are increasing there. What would, what do you want um, if you're really concerned about this, and as an individual, you're concerned that, yeah, I'm worried about, I have a history in, the, in my family of colon cancer and so on. You want to be free to really think about this, to make decisions about this, to think about, okay, what am I going to do with my diet? What am I going to do with exercise? What's the evidence for different drugs and therapies? And there might be some experimental ones, but if you're really worried or you've been diagnosed with this, it might be that you think in your context and talking to doctor, your own doctor, other experts, that yeah, it may maybe make sense to take this experimental treatment. Um, you want the freedom to be able to think about all these kinds of things and then act on them to make decisions about these at the individual level, not the government telling you, no, this test is out of bounds or this treatment is out of bounds. We don't think the evidence is good enough on a kind of statistical basis. And so, it's you want that freedom. And if you're really to be pursuing your own life and happiness, you need that freedom to make these kinds of decisions. And then at the kind of wider society level, just as you want the freedom that I'm able to do this, I want all the researchers in cancer, about who research cancer, who develop drugs, who develop other kinds of treatments, who are doing studies about diet or exercises, I want them to have the freedom to pursue these things, to be able to produce treatments. And so I don't want them all locked in their home um, because it's, well, there's some kind of danger going around. So the you want a system. And I mean, part of the value of freedom is to think about it. It's not just I'm free, everybody's free. So everybody's in pursuit of real goals, 
thinking about their own lives, um, you're able to trade with them and so on. So the the idea that I mean, so the, I'm sure you've seen this kind of argument that this is an argument. I mean, what's going on with COVID-19 and SARS-2? Uh, it's an argument for universal uh, uh, healthcare. I mean, so socialized healthcare, government taking fully control of the healthcare system. I have the exact opposite uh, view that, that when you look what's going on, it's such an argument that you would want individual decision making, both for the patient um, and for all the people in the healthcare system, that they can make decisions and act on the decisions without permission from the bureaucrats. Yeah, and I think we'll we'll explore that as we go through the yeah. uh, the different uh, phases. So, um, I think that's a good intro to the proper. Or role of government. And, and some people might get from what you've said and what I've said that in general, we think the government is way overstepping its bounds in terms of its involvement in the economy. And both of us are, for example, in favor of total freedom in medicine and in many other uh, other fields. So one kind of perspective we could talk about is, well, if we, you know, if America had stayed true to its founding principles for the last 200 years, what would it it look like? And I think that's an interesting kind of thing. And it's worth thinking about. But what I really want to focus on is what if, uh, you know, we not the whole government changed to be just a fundamentally pro-American government and completely consistent with individual rights, but what if in response to this uh, crisis or even before this crisis, the government took more of an American attitude. It said, we're going to really, we're going to really look at what makes us American. We're going to see like, how can we, how can we deal with this by by making sure to protect everyone's freedom and even double down on protecting everyone's freedom. And so uh, the, often the assumption is, well, if we had done that, it would have been mass death and we probably wouldn't have been prepared and it would have been millions of lives lost. And so what I want to do is really look at, no, what would a more pro-freedom, pro-American, pro-rights uh, approach look like? And I want to look at it in, in three basic stages. So one is before the pandemic, this is the issue of pandemic preparedness. What would a better, more American government have done before? And then at the outset, once you have a few uh, cases, you know, once you've heard that it's come over from China, what do you do? And then once there's nationwide spread, which is when the lockdowns uh, began. And one reason I'm interested, and then we'll talk about the future. One reason I'm interested in the past, which the recent past, which not too many people seem to be interested in, there's this idea of, oh, well, we just talk about the future, is it's really important to assess were lockdowns the right approach with the evidence we had? And I think many people think, yeah, that was the right approach. Um, we might know more now where it wasn't necessary, but it was generally the right kind of thing to do. And, and my view, and I know your, your view is this was not the right thing to do. There was a much better thing to do that would have been much better for individuals. And if we can't get agreement about what should have been done in the past with the information we know, it's going to get hard. To, it's going to be hard to have agreement about the future, and in particular, it's going to be hard to have agreement about what do we do if there's another spike in cases where people tend to talk about, oh well, yeah, of course, then we'll have to to lock down again. So I want to go through these three stages, then talk about uh, the future, and then for each of the stages. I want to make sure we cover in one form or another the major issues that have come up in terms of what the government needs to uh, sort of address and how a free government might address it, rights protecting government might address it. So there's the, I want to talk about what's the government's decision making process. How does the government communicate with people? This is a really big issue. How is the issue of testing handled? 
How is the issue of the healthcare system's treatment capacity handled and how does that play out? How do individuals engage in virus prevention? And then what happens to individuals' overall lives? So I won't necessarily go in those in order, but those are just what's on my mind. So let's let's start out with before the pandemic. So if you look at just even a year, a year ago, two years ago, what would a more rights-protecting government and and as a consequence, a freer people? What would they have done or not done to be prepared for a, a new and dangerous infectious disease compared to the way we were prepared or not prepared? Um, so I think one good way to think about this is that there's no law really around this issue. So you brought up the, the wielding of absolute power and the debate mm. really has been lately about does the president hold absolute power, he can just shut down a whole state and then decide when it's going to be open? Or no, is that the power the governors have? But to say it's absolute is that they can shut down everybody's lives indefinitely and then say, okay, yeah, we'll start opening it up a little bit and so on. And they have that enormous amount of power because I think it has not been legally specified what is the law in regard to infectious disease and what can a government do um, coercively when there's evidence that either it's an existing infectious disease like a flu outbreak that's, um, I mean, has pandemic potential, certainly, and or if it's a new infectious disease, as we're dealing with now, how does the law spe- think about this and then specify and delimit the government's power? And because there's very little law that I can figure out here in the U.S. about this, the default becomes well, the government can basically do anything that it wants. And then there's, I think, a certain reason why it locked down. There's a reason that we were in a panic state and so locked down. So the, but the crucial issue in preparedness, I think, is get advice from real experts about um, pandemics and infectious disease and write that into the law then. And so I think it has two components. It's one, how the law thinks about infectious disease. And this I brought up earlier, that you have to think about um, when does an infectious disease rise to a level that when someone has it and is carrying and infecting others, he's doing enough damage to them that you can say, no, this is a violation of their rights. And so we have to restrict you, that, that is the carrier of the infectious disease. We have to restrict your actions in some kind of way. And so, I mean, to take a simple example, common cold is an infectious disease and you do do some damage to other people. It's not pleasant to have a cold. You might miss work, which is not a good thing. It go into your sick days and so on. So that's an infectious disease, but it's, I think it's rightly thought of. It's not serious enough that it's you're violating someone else's rights if you walk around with the common cold and someone gets infected. So if that falls below the legal threshold that government would have any coercive reason, that is any reason to wield its coercive powers to restrain that person, even for the flu. And this is, I mean, there's been a lot of comparisons to the flu and people pushing back, well, this isn't the flu, it's not the flu virus. That's true. But in thinking about infectious disease, it's how we think about the flu is relevant to thinking about more widely how we think of infectious disease and how the law does. It's, so the flu's so more, much more serious than the common cold. It puts a lot of people in hospital. It kills people every year. And when you have a ser- more serious strain, it can kill in the 50, 60, 70, 80,000 Americans in a flu season. And yet we don't think even there 
that it's you go, going to restrict the actions of the person who's carrying the flu. You're going to put him under uh, isolation in his home or quarantine the whole household. And yet it is doing something to other people. So you have to think, no, OK, there's a level at which, OK, this infectious disease is serious enough and that that the law can intervene. Um, and I think there's various dimensions. And it's I, I mean, I'm not, again, not an expert on infectious disease. So an expert might say, no, there's even more dimensions in these. So it's not exhaustive. But you have to think how contagious contagious it is. So if it doesn't transmit that easily between people, you're not that much of a threat to other people. Um, you have to think of how it's transmitted. Is it by, is it respiratory, as in this case with uh, SARS-2 and COVID-19 that results, or like the flu, or is it sexually transmitted, or is it transmitted through a vector, as they call it, like a mosquito? That makes a difference for thinking, should the law intervene? And it, like, what do you do if it's mosquito-based and you happen to be bit by a mosquito and then it, it goes around, like, how do you track this and so on? That matters in terms of the law. So, so how contagious, how it transmit, how much damage it does. Like the, the, the common cold doesn't really put people in the hospital. The flu does. That's relevant to thinking about this. Some, I mean, including with the flu, it kills people. In this case with COVID-19, it seems even more deadly, or at least there's a possibility that it's more deadly than the flu. Certainly more people will get it this first time. So you have to think about that, like how much damage and destruction does it do if someone gets it? Um, and th there's a whole host of things like that you would have to think about. And part of being prepared is there's a lot of infectious diseases around. So you can take them and think, like, where do they fall? Why do we put the cold and the flu? This doesn't rise to the level of interfering with other people's rights. But maybe something like measles, it's highly contagious and does a fair amount of damage to people. That is that's above the threshold that you can start isolating people at home or quarantining whole households and things like that. And the more thinking there was about infectious disease and how they should be classified basically from the perspective of the law and then write that into the law, that this is how the law is going to function, that you would have real preparedness and you would have a government now functioning by law instead of by bureaucrats sort of scrambling around and deciding and often panicking about what is to be done and what powers to wield. It seems like if if the focus of the government is really uh, protecting rights, it like would feel more com and and it really has limited power. And there is this view that any time the government uses its coercive power, it has to use it with grave caution so it doesn't interfere with the legitimate freedoms of people. That would be a big incentive for people to actually make laws about this kind of thing. Versus the more. Uh, the uh, the leaders of a country are viewed to have unlimited absolute power. Why would they make any rules in advance? Because there's no limit on their power. They can just say, well, whatever situation arises, we'll use our best judgment, whether it's how we feel or consulting experts. Does that seem right to you? Yeah, that seems right. And again, if we're thinking this from the American point of view, the whole purpose of the Constitution is to specify these are the powers the government has. And if we haven't granted you these powers, you don't have it. So it wasn't you have unlimited power, and but here's the restrictions on your power. It's exactly the reverse. You don't have any power unless we grant you power. And this is the power we're granting you. And if it's not granted to you, you can't exercise it. So here the law would set out, yes, you have power once there's, and it would set this kind of thing out as well. What is the evidence to think, okay, we've got a new infectious disease and it falls, it's more like measles than the flu. 
So it's the, there's a role for government. Now you have power granted to you to do something about this. And then it would be, what can you do about this? And again, I think thinking of the kind of infectious disease you're dealing with, there would be a whole range of things that it's, okay, you can wield this kind of coercive power, but not that kind of coercive power. So yes, you can tell someone to self-isolate at home. You could test someone, say coming in from the airport. There's grounds, they're coming from a hot spot in another part of the world or something like that. So you have some evidence to thinking, you could be a carrier, we're gonna test you. Then if it's, oh, you test positive, we're gonna put you, we're gonna tell you, yeah, you need to stay at home for seven days. Um, but even there, it might be like, you can go to work, tell them you have this, but don't go to concerts, don't go shopping or restaurants. It's, we want you at home for seven or 14 days, whatever, I mean, the details of the infectious disease are, again, it's relevant. Um, if it's more serious that if it's like, if he goes out, it's a real problem because it's so contagious and it's very deadly, it might be, no, we're gonna, it's not sort of on the honor system that you don't go out, we're telling you to be at home for a week or two. It's, no, we're gonna have more enforcement of this. Um, I can even imagine just as with people on parole or, or um, kind of in halfway houses, that if it was serious enough and you've tested positive, you have to wear an ankle bracelet that so they can monitor that you're actually staying at home and not going around infecting 100 other people. Um, but so the law would specify both, like when and what evidence is needed to think, okay, we're now dealing with someone who has an infectious disease that if he's just go, kind of uh, going around interacting with people, he's violating their right, he's a threat to them. And then what coercive measures can be taken as a result of this? And if, if this were specified in law, then government officials would know what they should be doing. I mean, the part of the function of the law is the government's supposed to execute the law. So they wouldn't know what they're supposed to be doing. And all the citizens would know, okay, government has this power and I have to take that into account in thinking about my life and planning my life. And part of the reason you want law, so in the American system, it's a government of law, not of men. It's if it's a government of law, everybody knows beforehand, okay, this is how coercive power is going to be wielded, on what grounds, with what evidence, and you can then make adjustments and all kinds of businesses and individuals. We would have been more prepared as well if this were written into law. Yeah, so I have a, a bunch of follow-ups. We'll have to go through them pretty quickly because I want to get to the other stages okay. too, but... but um, one on, uh, so in terms of, you know, you, you gave a really good talk the other day for the Ayn Rand Institute, which I'll, I'll link people to on basically what a proper American government would do. And one thing you mentioned is, I, I think I'm, I'm getting this right, if, if we had clear laws about basically if an infectious disease rises to this level of severity, then this is the law, if that were clearly known in advance, then businesses could and would intelligently prepare for those different kinds of eventualities, including with testing. You know, one thing that's been noted is just testing for infectious diseases is in general pretty bad in terms of like preparing for things. There's also the whole issue of vaccine development and how that could that could be better. But imagine if if different you know, people with stadiums, people with planes, if they knew in advance, okay, if an infectious disease rises to this level, then if you can't test and isolate people, then you're not going to be able to run. Uh, could you talk about just how that would lead to a vastly different level of testing before something like this comes in? 
Yeah, and partly what's relevant here in talking about preparedness is the CDC, and I'm sure many other um, experts in this field at universities and private labs, have been advising the government, and the CDC is a government organization, so it's, it's, they make recommendations about uh, primarily what I've read is about influenza and if we had an influenza pandemic, so a flu pandemic, but they had um, uh, guidelines about, okay, if it rises to real severity, this is what would be done. It's mostly voluntary, but there's a few things. So there's not lockdown of a whole state, even in like, it's not even entertained. There's not even lockdown of a city, but there is things like banning large gatherings. So if it rises to like 1918 flu levels, we think about banning um, large gatherings, but it also has in the report modifying large gatherings. So you could still do them on certain conditions. And one obvious condition would be if you can test people and the people who test positive, you send them home and the people who don't, you admit into the stadium or the concert hall or whatever, that would be a way that you could keep functioning. Sports leagues could keep functioning and so on. And if people knew that, there would be such a financial incentive that if it rises to a real level, you might get shut down. But if you modify how you're operating, you'll be able to remain open. And there were, so there would have been money flowing into testing, both once a pandemic breaks out, or there's reason to think it might come here, you would have seen money flowing into testing. But more broadly, yeah, companies and so on, this would be part of their planning in terms of thinking. Companies often think about worst case or just bad scenarios, like what happens if this happens, and make plans for it. And many companies would have had plans for uh, how to better test if they knew there was law here and they knew, yeah, you know, we're not going to shut down a whole state, but we might shut down bit large gatherings if you don't make modifications. And so they would think about how do we make modifications to stay open? Um, just one thing I want to emphasize about the CDC example that I, I think you slightly emphasized here, but more emphasized in other places is that you're talking about CDC guidelines well before or recommendations well before oh. this pandemic. And you said that they didn't even contemplate the kind of citywide uh, lockdown. So I want to get to that when we get to when there's an outbreak, but I just want to highlight that for now, that the, the experts in this field were not at all saying, oh, yeah, if something like this happens, stop everything in the state of California. I think that's really interesting. And that connects to an example you've also shed some light on, which is Sweden, because it seems like Sweden has a much more American approach. So part of what I think people think is that in Sweden, it's just the leadership in Sweden had absolute power, but they just decided to wield it differently. But from what I've gathered from you, it's they actually have much clearer laws and limitations on government power coming into this and that informs or limits uh, what the government does. Is that correct? I mean, that from what I've read, yeah. So I'm, again, not an expert on Swedish law, but I was interested, and I'm sure a lot of people have been reading, like what Sweden is doing is different. And I was trying to figure out why is it different? And one of the interviews I saw, it, we, we might talk about this later, about like, is what you're trying to do is create herd immunity? And the reply from the, the Swedish officials in public health was, no, that's not what we're trying to do. It might be a result of what we're doing, but that's not what we're trying to do. And so I started thinking, well, what are they trying to do? And so I wanted to look at like what laws do they have on the books that are, do they have any that's guiding them? And it, yeah, when you go to their public health site, they have laws in Sweden. One of them was passed in 2004. I think it's the Swedish 
communicable diseases act or something like that um, that specify so one of the things the government has to do now they only have three categories which i think is too few but three categories if we get a new infectious disease is it of category one with least severity category two medium category three high severity so they have to first think about it and what's the evidence is there any evidence to put it where they've put COVID-19 so SARS-2 at severe but so there's they have to do that like it's legally this is part of what they have to do but they also then the law specifies do they have powers to isolate people to put a whole household into quarantine and to lock down and there are lots, I mean, they openly say on their, this public health site, that's the government site, that, no, we don't have the power to lock down a whole city. We can lock down sort of like a neighborhood, which I think they specify like a few blocks, in order, like if, it, if there's a hot spot that's broken out, you're trying to figure out if the government's role is to test and figure out, okay, who's contagious and who then do we have to isolate or quarantine the whole household or something, and who's not. We need some time to go in there and test. So the lockdown is, okay, we're, we don't want people coming in and out of, this, of these blocks because we have to figure out what is going on. They go in and test, and then they separate out the contagious from the non-contagious. But it's specified in law. So I suspect part of what is happening in Sweden is, yeah, the law doesn't grant us the power to shut down Sweden. So that's not what we're going to do. And there's more going on, I think, in terms of how they think about what evidence is there actually for how to deal with infectious disease. But part of it has to be, yeah, the law has delimited the government's power here. Okay, one more aspect about just pandemic uh, preparedness. And so this goes to the issue of the hospital system or the healthcare system's uh, treatment capacity. And so that's that's been the justification or pretext, I think the major one. Uh, for lockdowns. Just talk a little bit about how, to the extent we were a freer society, uh, particularly I would say with more capitalism in the realm of medicine, how would that have affected the flexibility of the healthcare system in general and the hospital system in particular? Yeah, I think part of the evidence that um, we don't have an American system in healthcare so if you think of the American system, it's, it's capitalistic. It's about making money, but earning it. I mean, not taking it from someone else, but producing no new things and making a profit. This is what America is built on. It's I mean, if you think in a free area of the economy, like Silicon Valley and high tech, America has the leading companies in the world that are making a huge amount of profit. Um, and that's good. We get such a tremendous value from Google, Facebook, Apple, and they're making huge profits. When you look at the healthcare system, you would think, um, okay, now that's a, we've got a new infectious disease that is doing damage. So their services are in high demand. You would think money would be pouring in. They would be making profits. The doctors, the nurses, I mean, a ton of people are working overtime and so on they would be making a lot of money. And if you think of, of in this pandemic, like Netflix and Zoom, who've seen demand for their services rise, they're making money from it. But in the whole healthcare system, and particularly with hospitals and so on, that's not what you see. Indeed, what you read about is we're out of everything, we're worried about going bankrupt. Um, and that tells you there's no operation of the profit motive and of, um, 
so when you get a new infectious disease, money should, for, should be diverted from other areas. And as an individual, you would think, okay, now I'm worried about this. Yeah. How do I prepare for that? So nobody's thinking like that. Nobody's thinking in terms of money and allocating the money and not even the government was, I mean, we'll talk about that. They weren't thinking enough about this. Um, so we have a really dysfunctional healthcare system. And in that context, you have to be very careful to think, okay, it is dysfunctional, but it can't be you hold the whole economy or the whole population hostage to the fact that it's dysfunctional. And so there's things to think about, about, yeah, okay, our healthcare system is nowhere as good as our high tech industry. But um, given that fact, how should we function? How should we think about it? And I don't think it's okay, it might be overwhelmed, so we need to shut down the whole state. That can't be the right reason. And we'll talk more about what would be, but it's it should be very noticeable to Americans that this is not how other industries and freer industries function. And we wouldn't want them to function like this. Like part of the reason Zoom can deal with the higher capacity, I think it's at least tenfold. Yeah. Although, I mean, this is a story two weeks ago, so it might even be higher now. Um, they deal with the capacity because, okay, yeah, I can charge for this. I'm making more money. A lot of that money will be poured into developing the software. There's an update almost every three days right now. Um, and that the money is not pouring into the healthcare system. And that is a real problem, but it indicates a failing of how we've set up the healthcare system. And just one more comment on that, and then I'll, I'll move to the next stage is if we're thinking about the future, what we want for the future, I mean, what I certainly want is next time something like this comes around, I want a much more flexible healthcare system that can scale quickly. Uh, yeah. Even if lockdowns are not the right response to potential overload, and we'll talk about why they're not, like what I want is for it to be like Zoom, where, yeah, they can get 10, 20 times the business and people are flowing in, resources are flowing in, and we're deciding individually and thus as an aggregate, yeah, we want to invest more in protecting our lives from this deadly thing. So one thing to think about is, yes, if we had had a more capitalist system, that would have definitely meant that it could scale much more quickly and adjust to new demand. And that's definitely an aspect that we're going to want in the future. So now, and if you think, oh yeah, I, I'm just going to bring up connected to some of what we were talking about before that if this was specified in law and companies and again companies that deal with big venues, sports arenas, and so on, if they knew just the, that okay, you might shut down large gatherings, and if one of the reasons was the hospital system will be overwhelmed, they would have an incentive to pour money into the hospital system that no, it has greater capacity, so it won't be overwhelmed. And if we could get that as well into the future, that they're thinking about that, like, okay, if the options, you're gonna shut down everything, or we pour some money into the hospital system, they'll have an incentive to pour money into the hospital system. So let's then talk about the next, you know, the next stage. So we'll talk about the beginning of a potential pandemic. So I'm thinking of it as we've learned that there's an outbreak in China. And of course, there's an issue with you know, dis lack of disclosure on that, but we're starting to have cases in the U.S. Let's say we have 12 cases in the U.S. We at, we at least there's a strong indication this is something contagious. Uh, it's it can be quite deadly and damaging. What is the you know what does the government response look like for a you know more 
a more pro-rights government. And you can either start with what it looks like or what it looks like in contrast to the way that our government reacted. Um, so if, if we think about it, the outbreak in China, so it's true that Chinese are misrepresenting, covering up, um, going after doctor, their own doctors who are talking about this. But it's not like that. That fact couldn't be known. When you read about Taiwan, one of the, I mean, and if you know the history of Taiwan and China, Taiwan has ample reason to distrust China. They didn't trust anything the Chinese were saying. And part of it was really looking like it looks like they're covering up things. So we better prepare. So even at that level, it could before it came from China here, it could have been that there was a lot of evidence, not you know what's going on, but that the Chinese are misrepresenting what's going on. So already to start thinking about, OK, how do we prepare for this? And the preparation, I mean, this has been said many times, but it's important to get like why this should be done and how badly we failed in regards to this. It's to test, isolate and then track. And this is, again, in terms of thinking of the government's wielding coercive power, you're trying to find the people who are actually infectious. And there's no other way to do that than to test. And then you're trying to isolate those people. And if you put them under house uh, isolation or what it is, I mean, in, in China, it was they were putting them in hospitals. So, but you don't need to do that. It's just they have to stay at home. And the reason you track is if they've infected people, if they before you've detected them, then you should test those other people. And that's basically what the government should be doing. So it has to have the ability to test. Now, part of that, if you deny what's going on, um, and even after then China admitted, yeah, we've got an infectious disease and, so, and shared some information, so there was still no ramp up in the US of testing. And it's testing what's emerged, and which this again can be corrected, is it's too much thought of as, the, because the government has this obligation to test, they have to control all aspects of testing. They have to approve tests, manufacture tests, and so on. And that's not true at all. You have to separate these two things out. The government has the obligation to test um, if, if it's an infectious disease that's new and seems pretty deadly. And it's I mean, a lot's unknown. So one of the reasons it has to test is this is new. But it should be buying the test and it should be encouraging private companies, private labs um, to develop tests. And it's not like there's just one test. So they should. Uh, all kinds of private individuals should be thinking of like, what's the best test? How do you get it from results take 48 hours to 15 minutes? And so you want all private companies and actors thinking about this. So you have to separate out. It has the obligation to test, but not to control testing. It basically what it should be doing is purchasing tests. And part of that then is thinking, OK, we've got to divert money to this. And again, if private industry knew Okay, we, we're going to buy tests. Can you develop them? And they have a profit motive to do that. Imagine what testing would be like in the US versus what it, and it's still, as far as I can figure out, it's not, it's certainly not adequate, but it's not even clear what is going on in regard to testing. And that was its major obligation. If you're taking it as we're about rights, then you have to figure out the people who are carrying this infectious disease. 
And we failed, unfortunately, miserably at that. So I think of that as as uh, as two aspects. So one is a more rights focused government is laser focused on the issue of how do we isolate the individuals who are demonstrably threats to others. So it's it sees its job as yeah we need to test trace, isolate people. That's what we're authorized to do rightly. And we're not authorized to do a whole bunch of other things. So we need to do that. So one is that protection of rights focuses us on what government clearly wasn't focused on. But the other thing is that individuals have rights to develop and use tests, which they didn't have when this began. So you you mentioned the issue of, of control of tests. So the way I see right. it is we'd have a government that was laser focused, but we'd have a people, a population that was free to create tests in whatever way they judged best, and then also to use them as individuals. But at the beginning, it would be much better if the government had this uh, capacity. And what you're still noticing is there's not much of a, a focus on testing still. And I think it's it's... It's viewed as, I think, now the focus is kind of, well, we need to test everybody every moment because if you can't do that, then nobody's allowed to be free. And it's viewed as, well, we can't we can't test our way to eradicating uh, the virus or it's, it's kind of too late. But in terms of the government's role, if it said, no, our job, what we have a right to do is is identify the people who actually have this and place certain restrictions on their behavior so they don't violate others' rights and... To do that, we actually need uh, evidence. So I just see it as a totally yeah. different situation from the get-go. Yeah, and if you think of businesses' incentive to test, this is a new infectious disease. It's not known how contagious it is, how deadly it is, but there's some evidence that it's fairly deadly. I mean, you don't want your workforce to be coming down with this and then half your staff is out sick and so on. So there's a real incentive to develop tests, and then you can also tell government, yeah, I've got some people who need to be isolated because they're testing positive. But there would be, the, the value of testing is so high, so, and not just because it's the government's function, but for private individuals and businesses to be able to know what's going on, that if it were free and it had a price, people would willingly pay that price. They would buy these things. Um, but there's no market in testing, and there still isn't, as far as I can figure out. What about what about the issue of responsibility both with individuals and with companies with with something like this cuz it's I mean I'll, I'll say I'm embarrassed to admit that when I first started hearing about this like some part of me thought yeah kind of this is the government's job to handle like oh there's an infectious disease you know we've got a CDC we've got a government it's like its job to handle versus in a you know, in, in a society where it's more clear that, no, health is ultimately your individual responsibility. And so the government can do certain things, but you on top of that have to, you know, you have to look out for yourself. It's not going to just, it can't, you can't just guarantee that it's going to eradicate any new disease. Like you have to be prepared and then companies have to be prepared. I'm curious if you think there's anything there in terms of that, that the response to the initial reports of disease would look quite a bit different in a freer society. Yeah, I mean, th this is, I think, partly why the CDC's guidelines are mostly voluntary. It's people have a self-interest um, to think about, okay, there's a new infectious disease or there's a pandemic flu, and what am I going to do in response to this? And there's all kinds of actions that they would take. So there would be, I mean, so the emphasis on uh, hand washing, disinfecting, social distancing, 
there's reason to do this, and particularly for a new infectious disease. So this issue of flattening the curve, the idea that it's either the government come with a hammer and the hammer down so everybody stays at home, or else the, there will be no flattening of the curve. That's a complete myth that there's reasons why individuals would think, um, no, I'm going to go to fewer big gatherings. I'm going to be more careful when I do. I'm going to hand sanitizer and hand washing and so on. Because with the new infectious disease, all kinds of things will be learned about, okay, what is exactly the nature of this infectious disease? Um, how do you treat it? What drugs work or not? And leave aside the issue of a vaccine. Just how do you treat this? How do hospitals think about this? Doctors and so on. A tremendous amount will be learned about this. So there's a real incentive of, I'd rather get this disease, even if it's going to end up that it's the same portion of the population is going to get it. So let's say it's 50%, it's a new thing, 50, 60%, because there's not immunity in the population. It's, I'd rather get this six months from now than now, uh, because more will be known about how to treat it. And we, there won't be a vaccine, but death rates will fall. Um, or at least there's a good reason to think they'll fall. So you have an incentive to voluntarily do these things, even if you're going to eventually get the disease six months or nine months from now. So there would have been a lot of voluntary implementation. And you already saw voluntary implementation when they finally started saying, no, this is here and we can't contain it. So it's going to be spreading around. It's there was I mean, an emphasis on hand washing. I started getting uh, emails from restaurants saying this is what we're doing and staff is washing their hands more and we disinfect the table after every guest leaves. And some even said we're doing a bit social distancing. So we're having fewer people in the restaurant. So there's so there's ample it's in people's self-interest to do this, which is why it can be voluntary and and should have been voluntary. So it's a myth to think it's either the government cracked down or people are going to act exactly how they were acting before. And I think that's a good transition into the stage I want to talk the most about, which is, okay, once once you have significant spread, so once it's starting to spread among all the states, because this is you know, what happened, I think you've described, and I would agree, as panic. So it went from mostly denial to panic very, very quickly. And so the question is, what is a a rights-focused government do, and then what does a free uh, people do? And you mentioned some of it. One thing I want to ask about first is what's the attitude toward evidence in terms of the the nature of the the virus and the infection, and and what the government does about it? Because what's interesting, what's been interesting in a, in, in a very negative way to me is that there seems to be this idea that. There's a huge amount of uncertainty about it, and therefore the government has kind of unlimited power to restrict activity. You've even seen, I think, you know, I think uh, Anthony Fauci. You, know, you saw, I mean, you saw different things. One thing was just definitive statements about, oh, the death rate of this is definitely ten times uh, the flu. Just that as a definite thing. Or models say, you know, the. I remember when I was on a TV appearance, the, the host said, well, like, how could you disagree with these lockdowns? Because the president said he saw a model that said, you know, if we don't do this, uh, two million people will die. And there, we could talk about the issues with the models and how they're being distorted. But just first, what is the government's attitude toward what kind of evidence it needs to take different kinds of coercive measures and then how it communicates that to people? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, my view, and again, if you think about it as if this were codified into law and that that part of an American response to this is we would have law about this, the more that's unknown and uncertain, the less the role for the law and therefore the government to be executing the law and wielding coercive power and using coercive measures, even putting people in their houses because they're suspected, but it's like a little reason to suspect they have this, uh, they're carrying, they're infectious, let alone locking down whole populations. The less that's known, the more you have to leave it to each individual to think what in my circumstances is the best course of action. And if you can think um, in other areas of the law, it if the government might have some suspicion that this guy is a murderer, but if you can't prove it, and for something like that, it's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, if you can't do that, then you have to let the person go. It's not, um, I've got some sliver of information here, and so we're going to put him in jail for 30 years. And for everything the government does, it needs evidence for what it's doing. And the more coercive power, like putting someone in jail for 30 years, the more the evidence that it needs to wield this power. So something like, again, I don't think it should have even the power to uh, lock down a whole city, but certainly not a state. But the amount of evidence you would need to justify that, even if you thought it was justifiable, um, it's like we're nowhere close to that. They, there is basically everything about this disease was unknown. So they didn't know how contagious it was. They didn't know how deadly it was. They didn't know when it first got to the U.S. Some speculated, given the Chinese cover up, it probably even came in 2019, like late, late November, early December. Um, some think it came in January. And so, but it matters a lot for thinking how contagious is it and what's the evidence? Like, when was it first here? And if it was here in November and we only have this many cases, it's not that contagious. But we don't even know how many cases we have because we can't test. Um, so. Every number was a guess, and it's important, like in thinking about the models, every number was a guess of how contagious, how deadly it is, how many cases there are, um, they are not, so how many, one carrier, how many people he infects, and so on. So it, in that kind of situation, you have to leave it to people to think, okay, yeah, there's certainly evidence that there's a new infectious disease here, but all kinds of things are unknown about it. So take the precautions that you think make sense, given how much is unknown about this. And again, as I said, the CDC's guidelines pre this um, pandemic and pre the, so the panic I think is really important here because when people panic, they throw things out the window. They throw their old guidelines and what they've thought about before. And so they throw it out the window, but the CDC's guidelines were voluntary and part of the, and largely, and part of the reason I think is yeah, in a pandemic, a lot of things are unknown. So you have to leave free individuals the ability to think about this and decide what to do. And and one simple example, just of thinking of 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 uh, going into self isolation, there would be some people who would have done that. I think it's relatively easy for them to work at home, or they have a lot of savings, and they might if they thought it was severe enough and like this, and you might, if you have pre-existing conditions or something, you might think, yeah, this like has a real chance of killing me. 
I'm going to stay home and live off my savings for a year and I'll look for a job from a year from now. And hopefully there'll be better treatments and maybe even a vaccine in development and so on. And other people whose livelihood is being destroyed with this would think, no, I'll take precautions. I'm going to hand wash more and so on. I'm going to go let few to fewer restaurants and only ones that are really doing social distancing and so on. But there would have been a whole range of responses to this. And that's particularly when it's unknown. The government can't wield coercive power. It has to give the information that it has. And in this case, unfortunately, it had very little because it wasn't even testing. And say, here's some of our guidelines. And you figure out what's best for your life and the lives of your loved ones. So, I mean, the approach you're taking is very focused on the individual's life and the individual's context and the individual's right to make one's own uh, decisions. As I pointed out at the outset, there's this, the the focus has been really to view individuals as sort of pawns of the government. And either it's the government's job to, quote, save people from this particular virus or it's government's people to it's it's government's role to just benefit everyone collectively. There was that tweet by the president about, you know, the cure can't be worse than the disease. And there are many, even among the people I most uh, admire, like I really have huge admiration for Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford, but I was listening to an interview of of his, and it's very it's it's very collective in terms of, yeah, the government has to just decide what's the best for everybody. What's what's wrong with that approach? Uh, well, there's a lot of things wrong with it. Um, but one thing worth saying is the more you think of the government as having absolute power here and the fewer laws there are. And as I've said, there's essentially, as I can figure out, no law here. It's the government has total power. There's a natural bad, but a natural response to think, OK, so. They're going to blame me if somebody dies from this. Mm. Um, and therefore, what my goal as a government official has to be is to make it as few deaths from this, just from COVID-19, as possible. And, yeah, people aren't really looking at if we shut down the economy and let's just think of hospitals, for instance. If we've, we've postponed elective surgery, elective tests and so on. Um, What's that going to do to death rates for cancer for when it wasn't detected? You couldn't get a colonoscopy. You couldn't get a breast scan. So what is that going to do? Well, people aren't going to blame me for that. But they're going to blame me for this because I'm supposed to be able to control this. I have total power. And so so this is and, and people who write about government um, and public choice and so on. This is one of the things they'll talk about. There's this incentive. Um, but it's a completely collectivist incentive because it's the idea that, OK, I've been given the power to run everybody's lives and I'm going to be blamed if somebody dies from this. So the simplest solution is to shut down everything. And it's OK, if nobody interacts and nobody does anything, then this isn't going to spread and there won't be deaths from this and nobody's going to blame me. Um, whereas a real um an individual response would be thinking about each of these individual lives. And it's not my power as a government official to be deciding whose is more important, whose is less important. You might die from this. OK, so I'm giving you 100 points. 
okay, you who run a restaurant, yeah, you might be go bankrupt and so on, but you're not going to die. So you don't count very much or you count like one point and then one point and then you're trying to have some kind of grand calculus. This is you're handing total power over to the government if you think it should be doing this. It why shouldn't it be doing this for everything, for people's diets? It's Look, if you have a really bad diet and you don't exercise, your chance of dying is going up and I'm going to be blamed for that. So I've got to control everything here. Like if you really thought it's the government's power that we're delegating it to decide, I mean, to, to control, okay, where well, you're trying to minimize the number of deaths, it has to take total control over everything. And okay, we don't think about that for diet and exercise. No, we'll reserve that. We're, we'll figure that out as individuals. But for this new disease, yeah, you've got that power. Um, this is what it's going to do. And if it had this power for the flu, it would, if it was, we want oh, as few deaths as possible for, from the flu and as few hospitalizations, why wouldn't it lock down the whole state in order to accomplish that? So it's a collectivistic goal. And you can't even calculate this. So the idea that some government official or body of officials or, or the, the people advising Trump can make this kind of calculation, even just in terms of number of deaths, I do not think is possible. And if you think of the uncertainty about like what they don't know about COVID-19, how would you even calculate? Like what are the deaths from this going to be versus the deaths from, okay, we're not having uh, screenings at hospital for colon cancer and so on. And it's not just deaths that's relevant. If you're trying to calculate what's the damage you're doing to innocent people. That is, you have no evidence they're carrying this disease and so on. You're locking them in their homes. You're destroying their livelihoods, social interaction, even among old people. Like if you're if you're an old person, 85 or something, your chance, if you look at the statistics, your chance of dying pre-COVID-19 and so on is like 15, 20%. And that part, and if you have health issues and so on, you might think, yeah, I've got about a year to live. I want to live it and I want to interact with my grandchildren and I want to go out and so on. You can't make that kind of decision and you can't fit this into a calculus that's going to some grand equation that's going to tell you this. And um, the government shouldn't even be trying to do it. It's not its responsibility to decide whose life's important, whose is it, picking winners and losers. Um, and the American system is, again, to say you're free and you have rights, it's you have to figure out all these things um, and what is really worthwhile in your life, what risks you're willing to take and why. And people will take stupid risks. But you're, what you're concerned about is the people who are taking rational risks. And there are many um, people who would, for various reasons, say, I would risk getting this um, and I want to be free to move around and work and so on. Um, and that this this collectivistic utilitarian calculus, I think, is both really, really bad morally, but it's also a complete fantasy that there anybody can do this calculation. So that's not actually what happens. Yeah, there are multiple dimensions of this I find very objectionable. Kind of the most visceral to me is just the lack of regard for the individual's pursuit of happiness. And I just think of the the old person example. That stuff just kills me if I just think about. You know, nobody cares. The, the the quote calculations like it doesn't matter at all that this person wants to see their grandchild, and they're 
again, they have very little time left. And I just see there's this complete disregard for the pursuit of happiness, which is really why we want freedom in the first place and why we want to live in the first place. Another aspect that bothers me when you see these calculations and predictions and talking about saved lives is there's this very related combination of determinism and lack of individual responsibility. So there's this idea of, well, if we leave people free, then they're going to be totally irrational. And part of that is that's not true at all. First of all, leaving people free means preventing behaviors that demonstrably benefit rights by demonstrably spreading the virus. That's one thing. Then the other thing that you mentioned is, well, individuals have every incentive to mitigate this disease. And then there's the whole issue of people being free will develop much better treatments than people who aren't free. But there's also the issue that if somebody, so if somebody uh, gets you know, if, if somebody, let's say the government communicates well, everyone communicates well, which is something that definitely has not happened. But if that happens and people decide to be uh, reckless, then, I mean, you could have, yeah, a bunch of people decide to be reckless, older people, or I can't even judge whether they're reckless in most cases, but, you know, older people decide, hey, I want to do this. And then you have, let's say, 50,000 more deaths from older and frail people than you would have otherwise. The way things are calculated now, that's viewed as a failure. It's viewed as, oh, 50,000 more people died from this, therefore that's wrong. But I would view it as, well, but if if there were sort of 500,000 people at risk and fi- and they all took this calculated risk and 50,000 of them died, I regard that as successful. That's what they made. Th- they made a free decision to do what they judged was best for their life. So what, what, anything to say about just this element of determinism uh, in and lack of responsibility in how these things are being discussed? Um, well, it's, it's worth saying how un-American this is. So the whole American system of government and the perspective of rights, you have a right to life, liberty, property, the pursuit of happiness, is that you as an individual have the capacity. You might not choose to exercise it, but you have the capacity to think and to act rationally. That is to think carefully about what you're doing and then act accordingly. And then you can create tremendous things and you should enjoy the things you create. And the whole goal is you to pursue happiness. It's attainable if you really think about it. And then if, if the wider in terms of this is a representative government and the whole view is we the people are delegating power to the government. It's all premised on people can be rational and and largely will be if they're given the freedom. Um, Like think about voting. If you really had this view of people that they're so stupid that there's a new infectious disease coming and they're not going to do anything about it. They're just going to act as um, act like the government officials, like they're going to put blinders on. uh, I don't see anything. So. If you really thought that, like, why would you think voting? Why aren't they going to make the stupidest choices possible in regard to voting? And this is not how the founding fathers viewed the general population, that if granted freedom, yes, some people will do stupid things, including vote in stupid way. They don't think at all about the candidates and their positions and so on. But the large majority will think about these things and act accordingly. And that, like, if you think they can do this in voting, they can certainly do it for and voting is more complicated that for an infectious disease that's literally life and death. Um, so this whole perspective that people are 
too ignorant or too stupid to take preventive measures um, is is completely wrong. But so this is relevant to the panic. So I think it's not just government officials who are panicking. People started panicking. But if you tell people, oh, there's nothing here. There's 12 cases going to zero. It's going to magically disappear and so on. It's yeah. Are they going to do any preventive measures if that's what they think? And this is what the experts about infectious disease seem to be telling them and so on. It's yeah, there's nothing here. And then if it's oh, no, we've got something really serious, like it's all of a sudden and it's it's oh, okay, well, then I've got a completely panic. I mean, so that it sets up the conditions, not just for the government to panic and to say, okay, oh, now it's not just like um, nothing's going to happen, but people are going to die. Oh, God, we got to stop that. But people will think that as well. So the panic, there was real panic going along, along, um, but there was a reason for it. And the more the government communicated about what it knew and Yes, I mean, the evidence out of China, they're covering some of it up and so on, but it's, we've got a serious new infectious disease and so on. People would have started preemptively acting in January, not thinking, no, nothing's happening. And then it's, oh no, something big's happening. And it's, it's, it's like a meteorite hit. And that's like a condition, you're sowing the conditions for panic. And then you, we're gonna point to that and say, like, see how stupid people are? But no, I mean, then you saw those stories, like, why is everybody buying toilet paper and so on? And I told people at the time that, yeah, they're being criticized as irrational. And I think some were panicking. And so, on. But given what's sort of coming out of the government, we're going to have shutdowns. And, so on, and they're going to look rational that they got all these supplies because they're yeah. not going to be able to go out and so on. And so there was panic, but that's not evidence that people are stupid. Well, and it was partially panic about uh, what the government's going to do and how arbitrary. I mean, that was certainly my my fear about it. So one aspect of this that's crucial to address is the the hospital system overload idea, because that was the, the pretext of this. And I think there are a bunch of things to say, but maybe the first thing to talk about is, because there's the issue of, well, if you'd been had a freer society, a more capitalist society, you would have less of these problems. There's also the idea of, of using very distorted information and kind of extreme negative scenarios with very dubious assumptions and bad data to assume, like putting every, assuming it's just this incredible perfect storm and then just having these doomsday scenarios. Uh, there's that, but there's also the issue of, okay, if, if we take it as the, there is a real risk of the hospital system being overloaded, what's the proper government and, and the government does whether we like it or not right now, have significant control over and therefore responsibility for the hospital system, what's the proper response if it's not, oh, now if the hospital system may well be overloaded, we now have the power to lock you down indefinitely because the hospital system can't be overloaded? Yeah. So it's both what, I mean, the two major things, I think, for thinking of what our existing government should have been doing in January when the there's real evidence that we've got a new infectious disease. It's how do we test for this? We've talked about that. But how do we get hospitals and the healthcare system more generally prepared for this? Um, and the, the, there was basically, from what I can tell, no uh, push to get hospitals and the healthcare system 
prepared. So one of the natural things for government to do would be, okay, we already spend billions of dollars and we're faced with a new reality. That is a reality in which there's a new infectious disease. That's different when we wrote our budgets six months ago and whatever, it, that wasn't on the horizon, but now it is. So divert funds to deal with this. And that would be both, we've got to buy tests uh, and buy them. So you would give incentive to the, the researchers and manufacturers of tests is, we want to buy these things. So if you can make these things, we're going to buy them. And we're going to put money into hospitals in order to prepare. And it's again, it's if you said, um, we're okay, we're taking 10% of the budget from public education. And you've, you're going to, and if you're thinking, oh, we're going to shut down the schools anyway, yeah. you could think, yeah, you could take money from that. You could take money from Social Security and Medicare, because part of this was we need to protect old people. So there's evidence that it's particularly deadly for old people. Reduce payments to Social Security by 10% and use all that money to, to increase hospital capacity. So none of that was done. And this, that there, and this is part of the why it's was not why, but there was denial evasion. Why there's panic? It's part of the panic is we've got this new thing and we can't test for it and we haven't prepared at all for it. So there's going now it's going to be, yeah, there's going to be deaths that didn't have to happen. And that puts even more incentive to, OK, we're going to lock down and we're going to try to reduce the number of deaths as little as possible, because it's not just we're going to be blamed for this. We should be blamed for this. We've screwed up. So in that context, you can see the emphasis of why they would so easily move to we've got to lock down everything. And um, and there's a real incentive then. So why has there been so much stress on the worst case scenarios? And many of the worst case scenarios are basically people wouldn't do anything. There wouldn't be increased hand washing. There wouldn't be real social distancing. So if you're going to lock down, it seems more justifiable if you tell people, well, look, if we don't do this, there'll be two million deaths. Then if you said if we didn't do this, there would be 200,000 deaths. Yeah, it's a totally different thing. So that it's the panic. It's hard to underestimate the role the panic's playing because it's it's okay. We're going to lock down, so we have to justify the lockdowns, and so we're going to paint the worst case scenarios, and that's the number that's going to be trumpeted. And with regard to healthcare, it's on all these models. Healthcare capacity is a flat line. Um, so why is it a flat line? Why can't you increase hospital resources and so on? But the more you make it an ascending line, there would be, okay, there's blame for why it didn't start ascending, that is hospital capacity growing a month or two ago. So the more you make it, oh no, you can increase hospital capacity and you show this in the diagrams, the more they're blamed for, okay, the government really screwed up here. But also the, the fewer deaths there will be. And if you're trying to justify the lockdowns, you have a real incentive to stop talking about you can increase hospital capacity. So when you're thinking about what the government's doing, you have to think about that they failed and there's incentive for them. In fact, um, unfortunately, there really shouldn't be if the voting public was more scrutinized the government more in the way early Americans were fearful of government power. So you would think and you would 
give a premium to government officials who admit their mistakes. Here, right now, we're in a circumstance where there's a premium put on the people who don't admit their mistakes. Um, so when it's so rare for government officials to say, yeah, we screwed up. Um, so if they're not going to say that, then it's you're, you're, you paint this worst case scenario. And it's a complete fantasy that free individuals wouldn't increase healthcare capacity in the face of a pandemic. But that's what the models look like. And it's yeah, it's it's really bad that the government didn't do this and then sort of pretends that it can't be done. The other aspect that we've talked about offline, and, and I think you've talked about this a little bit publicly, is okay, given like okay, given all these mistakes and given hospital capacity overload, or even if even if the government had done more preparedness, but it turned out to be worse than it actually was, like is this an argument for saying we get to restrict everyone's behavior, but but maybe the better way of going at it is, isn't there something the government can do in terms of communicating with people and hospitals can do in terms of communicating with people about different capacity issues in different places so that they can rationally respond? There's this idea that no matter what's happening with healthcare capacity, and which that's going to mean rationing at a certain point, no matter what's happening, people will just go about their business and interact and go to Mardi Gras and, and do all these crazy things versus I would think if you communicated, hey, we have real hospital capacity issues, that would serve as a direct incentive for people to uh, do more virus mitigation and spread mitigation measures. Yeah, my view is that the government in this kind of situation should be completely transparent, sharing all of its data, including the things they don't know and the things that they've screwed up. So the more people understood that, look, we have not rammed up um, hospital capacity. We haven't even done protective equipment. So doctors and nurses and so on, there's a chance in certain areas they're going to run out of gowns and masks and so on, which, I mean, unfortunately, they have that's happened. And, 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 and doctors and nurses and healthcare staff have died as a result of that. And needlessly, the more it was known, okay, that's our situation. Um, yeah, we screwed up. But even if it didn't screw up, and it just turns out, yeah, this disease is more contagious, and it, the hospitalization rate is higher than we thought it was. And so we're facing um, uh, being overwhelmed. Um, my view of government healthcare is it's rationed care. That if you're not leaving individuals to make choices about healthcare and to pay for what they want and the insurance they want and so on, if you don't have um, a market in the way that you have, say, for personal computers, and you make all these kinds of decisions about what I can afford and how often am I going to replace my computer and so on, there's not prices really in the healthcare system. I mean, when when I use healthcare. And I get bills. I have no idea what the bill is going to be. I have no idea if I can dispute this. And it's like orders of magnitude. Sometimes I can be charged $10 and I'm really surprised. Really? $10? That's it? Sometimes it's like $500 and really? $500 for that? And you can't, if, even if you ask in advance, they can't tell you what the price is going to be. Um, so we don't have anything like a market and prices. So how are decisions made about who's going to get what? How are things going to be allocated? The government has to ration and say, well, you get it and you don't. And the more it was open about, look, in New York City, we're going to be overwhelmed and we're going to have to do what we did, what they did in Italy, for instance, is we can't deal with all these patients. 
And we have to start ranking who's more important to deal with, who's less important to deal with. Um, and it might be that they're dealing with the elderly and more severe and not with the younger people, or they're doing it the other way around. What they've decided is it's if you have a greater chance of survival, we're going to put you on ventilators and so on. The more people understood that that's really the situation, yeah, the more incentive they would have. It's going to be a disaster if I end up at the hospital or need hospitalization. I might not even get in to the hospital. And so, yeah, maybe social distancing is even more important than I thought it was. And or other, I mean, different kinds of precautions that people could take. But the more information they had about that and the more the government was realistic about what is going on, including the government run health care means ration care. This is how we're going to ration care. And you need to know that as citizens and act accordingly. But if you have this kind of fantasy, everybody gets free health care. And if you need a test, there will be a test. And if you need a bed, there will be a bed. Um, you set people up to, OK, so I don't have to worry too much about this. And then it's, oh, no, I guess I do have to worry. And that, again, is conditions for panic. The more you don't give people information, the more their imagination can run wild. But then when bad things start happening, it's like, why is bad things? You told me everything's great. Why are bad things happening? And it's OK. Nobody knows what's going on. And it's like that's sowing again, sowing the seeds for panic. And it's really bad to do that. So there's there's so I, I want to get to going forward, but there's there's so much more to talk about, I think, in terms of what a, a proper rights respecting government would have done, even once there is you start to reach pandemic level and then what a free people would have done in terms of intelligent action. One thing that I just keeps coming to me is how could it possibly be the most rational thing for people's health and well-being to just lock them up in their homes, including, you know, having vulnerable people with younger people who may have the thing and preventing us from going outdoors and, and then just, I mean, in general, just individual judgment totally being thrown out the window and people staying home and being miserable and consuming more alcohol and getting less exercise and even not being outside when being outside is generally healthy, but but particularly in sunshine with regard to a, a disease like this. So there's there's a lot to say, but maybe the way to to end this particular stage is is what can you say in terms of just what your vision would be of of you know, what the last two months could have looked like in terms of, you know, what the government would have done and what producers would have done and what individuals would have done, because I think we would just be in a much, much better situation. Yeah. Um, so what producers would have done if th there had been more conveying of information and more more conveying of information and accurate information, including all the unknowns, private companies and individuals and researchers would have done all kinds of things to try to figure both to try to figure out what is going on. So developing tests and testing, um, but also like what are ways that we can mitigate the spread of the disease in our companies, in stadiums? And we've talked a little bit about this, but there would have been a whole bunch of thinking about how is the best to do this. And it's, you can't, um, like, you can't be a central planner and think like, uh, yeah, me sitting in my office, 
I can figure out everything that free individuals would have done. You can anticipate some of the things they would have done. They certainly would have put a lot of emphasis on testing. But there would have been a lot of emphasis. Like just, it's not just individual testing. Part of what you want to try to understand is what the spread of this disease looks like. You brought up uh, Bhattacharya. Part of what he's interested in, and it, there should have been way more interest in this early on, is to think, to, part of trying to understand how contagious, how deadly it is, is how many people are actually infected with this? Not just they're ending up in the hospital, but how many people are infected? He's doing randomized sampling in Santa Clara. He's doing it now in L.A., and he's doing it with uh, baseball teams across the nation. So, and Because you're trying to anticipate hot spots, and you would move resources into the hot spots and away from places that don't need them currently. Um, so the idea you would have th this part of what's insane about the statewide lockdowns, it's not even true that it's in New York State. It's everywhere. It's you would want to concentrate on the places that it, there's really an outbreak. But to figure that out, you have to test. And if you were trying to enlist the help of the private sector in testing and saying we're going to buy tests and part of what we want to do is these randomized sampling and so on. There would have been a real emphasis on that and government buying things versus controlling things. And there would have been a real emphasis on data collection to understand the spread of the disease and where it is to take much more targeted action. There would have been a real increase in the manufacture of all the hospital supplies. So if it was conveyed earlier on that, look, we're going to run out. And we as a government don't know how to manufacture these things, but we'll buy them. If you start producing these things, this is we'll buy at least this money at this price and so on. You would have had a much earlier ram, ramp up of product, production of, well, as they call it, PPE, personal protective equipment. We wouldn't have had doctors and nurses and so on um, with this kind of little protection that they have. And it when stories started coming out about, yeah, they're really in dire straits, people started volunteering. Um, they've got masks for whatever reason. I mean, there were even TV shows that used them for, started donating this stuff to hospitals and so on. If you had said not, and these stories leaked out, if you had said a month ago, yeah, this is going to happen, government officials, hospital officials and so on, this is going to happen. And we'll buy these. We're diverting funds from other things. And so we would buy these. We, th I mean, you just would not have had the, this lack of equipment. And the, the people would have been thinking about uh, and looking at the evidence for how deadly this is, what the risks really are, and taking all kinds of voluntary precautions. And it would range from different people and different businesses. So, but we saw none of these kinds of things. And it's, it's the, the government is controlling too many of these things, particularly the testing and, and the whole hospital and healthcare system. And then if it's not giving the information for people to think, oh yeah, there's stuff we need to do. It's, I mean, it's, it's a recipe for what we have, which is um, a disaster, really. I mean, the other thing I would just add to that is, is in terms of all these virus mitigation and spread mitigation measures, you would see 
you know, much more beefed up version of what you already started to see voluntarily in terms of restaurants, you know, thinking about in terms of rational social distancing type things. And, and you already mentioned a lot of this, but individuals dis- making these decisions based on what made uh, sense for them. I think you'd also see much more experimentation with different types of things. I've talked about variolation slash low dose exposure uh, type things. It's just and I, I would love, I guess we have this a little bit with Sweden, but I think there's nowhere near what a real American approach would have been in terms of the amount of productive ingenuity, but also the amount of individual ingenuity. I think part of it is that the there's this view that, and I think there's also a collectivist view that, you know, the goal is to just reopen things, which has the idea of kind of a static society and we just reopen it. And this is going to go to the next segment going forward. Like it's just going to be exactly the same as it was versus, and people kind of want that versus the way a free people would think about it is no, there's a new deadly contagious infectious disease out there that wasn't there before. This is a new variable in our lives. Maybe someday it'll be like polio, but not for, uh, not for a while. And so we need to each use our best judgment to deal with this thing in the context of optimizing our overall lives. And you'd see just all kinds of ingenuity. You would see suffering, but you're going to see suffering inevitably because there's a new infectious disease. And so I just, I just imagine in America where we were, where we were adults about it and where we were allowed to be adults and just make these decisions uh, for ourselves, as well as having a medical industry where people were liberated to come up with treatments and cures and tests and recommendations as quickly as possible. Yeah. Let's, um, let's go forward to, okay, what's the proper path, uh, forward? And there's now a lot of debate about, you know, where, when do we quote reopen? I, I mentioned I have some objection to thinking about it that way, but how do we go forward? Some of the people who are critical of the shutdown are saying, okay, we should, we should, uh, you know, very gradually release restrictions. What's, what's your view of the right path forward? Because you've said, and I, I agree totally that like the lockdowns were not at all the right response in the first place. So it's not like we're saying, yeah, the lockdowns were good, but now they've worn out their welcome or their, or the evidence turned out to me. We're saying like the lockdowns, that was the wrong un-American response in the first place and leaving people free and truly protecting their rights by going after demonstrable threats based on evidence and using testing and tracing and isolation and, and letting people free to make judgments. That's the best policy. So what would you say going forward, uh, governments should do like starting now? Yeah, I mean, I, they should lift the restrictions as uh, quickly as possible. They should be realistic about the state of the healthcare system, but they shouldn't think like the, the idea that you can think about it as um, sort of like the U.S. healthcare system and it's going to be overwhelmed. That's not how infectious disease works, and it, it's much more localized. And so even about thinking about that issue, it should be much more targeted and localized. But the part of the reason, and we haven't talked too much about this, but part of the reason that the lockdowns are really, really bad is the issue of evidence. But so like, what's the evidence that we need to do this? But that includes, and it's this is how perverse it is, I think, is 
what are we trying to do? Like, what are these lockdowns going to accomplish? And to say that it's panic is, I think it's basically, we can't have people dying now. And so we're going to lock down things. But is this going to reduce the number of deaths if you look for a, a year time horizon? That is unknown. It's, it depends on how infectious this is. Can you develop treatments for it? Vaccine, most of the people talk, will be longer than a year out. So when they talked about flattening the curve, it was completely unclear. Did it just mean you're extending the same amount of cases, so the same amount of people who will be infected over a longer period of time? And so it will be, yeah, likely some deaths, will, there'll be fewer deaths because if, if hospital capacity, at least in some areas, was overwhelmed, presumably that leads to more deaths from COVID than if it's not overwhelmed. So the flattening, the healthcare capacity was, if you get under that, you'll have fewer deaths, but you'll still have basically the same amount of people um, who are infected, and you're doing tremendous amount of damage to all kinds of people by locking down. So it's when they locked down, it was like, what are you trying to do? And so when are you going to lift these lockdowns? Because it's like if you've slowed the number of cases, won't it just then won't they start going up again when you lift the lockdowns? So there's and nothing, basically nothing was communicated about what the overall goal was. Why is this legitimate as a goal? How do we think we're going to achieve it and so on? So part of the issue about should they lift the lockdowns and what the criteria should be for it is how do you come up with criteria? Because you don't know even what you're trying to do with these lockdowns. And part of it that was unknown is they don't understand how this infectious disease works. We're not even at the level of saying that if you have antibodies, then you have some or whole immunity to this. And so, and so it wasn't like there was no goal, I think, in locking down. And so if you're asking me like, now, what are the criteria to lift it? It's you didn't know what you were doing when you were locking down. And, and so the default has to be lift all these restrictions that you've done. Give the guidance that should have been given at the outset, including this is what we don't know, but we do know hand washing works. And the, this is what you can do voluntarily and allow people now to adapt to the actual circumstances. But I mean, the, they passed a $2 trillion stimulus and there wasn't even money for doing the testing that needs to be done. And not just at the individual level, but of thinking of um, sort of the randomized testing that we were talking about before to then think, yeah, okay, this in this part of this state, it looks like now it's starting to spread. And, it, and so we have to think about that and how do we get hospital capacity in this area up higher and so on. There was, it's, so they're spending money like crazy, but not on the right things. And they've locked us down in part because they've spent, I mean, they're not doing anything of what they should be doing. And in that kind of circumstance, it can't be, yeah, we need a gradual role, uh, removal of these things and so on. It's, they didn't know what they were doing. That's part of the panic. And um, in that kind of situation, you should admit that, it, yeah, we didn't really know what we're doing. So if if you could uh if I could get you to be like Cyrano de Bergerac to Gavin Newsom and so he would just speak what you said like what would you tell him 
to say in terms of like what we're doing going forward, but also, you know, what we've done wrong, uh, so far, like what should he be saying, uh, to Californians? I think he should be saying that there's a real element of panic here. Um, and, and it's, and it's not, I mean, this is in part an issue for the federal government and particularly the testing, um, and thinking if we're, and it, when it's a disease that's coming from other parts of the world for first and so on, it's I think it, it, immigration is a federal kind of issue. And this kind of testing would be a federal issue. So there's certainly a role for the states as well. But this is in part a federal failing, but that helped contribute to the panic on all the part of the state governments. And so, on. But to say yet yeah, there was we've had a real panic in regard to this. And um, so the, these statewide lockdowns, they're not justified. This is what we're going to be doing going forward. So we're part of our responsibility is to be testing. Now, it's not clear when it's this widespread that there's an issue of, that you could isolate, but they should be thinking about of the of people who test positives and so on. How do you isolate them as much as possible? But it's it's there would have to be real thinking. Of, so it's not draconian of, of how you do that. And can they actually execute and enforce isolation? And if they can't, they shouldn't say that we're isolating. But to the extent that they could test and isolate actual carriers of this, um, they should do that. And they should talk about, yeah, we control an enormous amount of the healthcare system. This is how we're now thinking about the healthcare system, how we're ramping up capacity and how we're deploying it. So it's not like a statewide healthcare system. It's if we're testing and if there's an outbreak in LA, resources are gonna pour into there. We're trying everything possible not to shut anything down. Um, like the, that should be the default. We're not shutting things down. And this is what we're doing to be in a position where we won't be panicking and shutting things down. And what you as citizens have to do and think about is, this is what we know now about SARS-2 and COVID-19. Um, we know it's more prevalent in the population than it was originally thought. So that means fatality rates are lower than what they, they're not one or 2%. So the, if, if Bhattacharya's data is right, he's putting it more at like it's 0.1 or 0.2%. Now that's still in a sense more deadly than the flu because more people will get this and there's not a vaccine that you can take and so on. So it, it's a really serious thing, but all of this should be conveyed to the population. And then like, you really should think about adjusting your behavior given this is what we know about it. And then if there's an issue about um, large gatherings to really explain how that's gonna work, like you can't have large gatherings if you're just gonna do it like it, you used to do it, but if you're going to do testing or it's going to be more social distancing and that, then you can do it because we're still not at a level of testing. Like the state is not at the level of testing everybody. So a, a huge gathering where this can spread a lot. Um, we view that as a threat. But this is if you take these steps, you can still do this. And so it's that's what they should be trying to lay out. Um, so they should be trying to lay out more like what it should have been like at the start. So as much as you can get now back to that kind of scenario where the government, what it's doing is testing, tracking, isolating, and laying down some rules, but mostly voluntary, and maybe a few 
like large gatherings, um, they could issue some rules about this is what it would have to look like for these to be able to go ahead. But one of the things that's also striking about the CDC report, and we, I, I sure, I think we've both listened to some things where other experts in infectious disease talk about this. What they actually have evidence for of what works is hand washing. And almost everything else, it's not to say it doesn't work, but they don't have a lot of evidence, even for social distancing, that it makes that much of a difference. But something like school shutdowns, they have a little bit of evidence when you read the CDC report for flu that young kids really spread the flu. So shutting down schools might do something. But even there, if you they're open about like the data is not very clear about it. Part of when when the CDC talks about shutting down schools, one of the kinds of scenarios is, well, there'll be a lot of kids sick and parents will want to keep their kids away from school. So schools won't even function very well because the, the students won't be there and so on. So one of the things that you should think about is send the kids home. The adults stay at school and they run online schools, but not you shut down the whole school. It's you, the kids are staying home and so on. But so even for something like school closings, it the evidence when you actually read and they're open about this, like it's you might think about closing schools, but even that's not known. And here we're not dealing with the flu. So it's it's the kids. It doesn't seem like they're spreading it nearly as much as other people. So it might have even been better that they, you kept schools open. And so, and again, the more they were transparent with this is what the evidence is, this is what we're going to do. And coercively, we're going to say, OK, you can't have large gatherings if you don't do it like this. But everything else you as individual citizens should think about and parents would think about this kind of thing. Like, do I want to send my kid to school? And they might think he's better off at school he or she's better off at school than being around and, and and we're better off if we're 50, 60 of not of not having as much interaction and so on. Um, so the, the governors would be emphasizing we're giving you your freedom back, use it responsibly. And this is what we know and this is what we don't know and it should inform your decision making. And this is our limited role. And this is what it is. And that's now what we're focusing on. And we're not focusing on do we shut down a state? And if we have another outbreak, we're going to shut everything down again. And so we're focusing on what we should have been focusing on from the outset. It's interesting. As soon as you said, we're restoring your freedom or giving you back your freedom, use it responsibly. I mean, I think the flip side, which you indicated is, and we're going to start using our power responsibly. So yeah. we're going to we're going to focus on actually, um, you know, making rules about people where there's real evidence that they're infectious and there's a danger to others. And I think you can say that about large gatherings with, with no testing. Like we're going to testing. We're, we're going to focus on that and we're going to make sure that you're free to make your own decisions. That's part of our role. And we're going to leave healthcare producers as free as possible to innovate and to uh, create value. And I think one of the other things is we're going to be incredibly transparent with information so that both we can make the right decisions, we can justify those decisions to you, 
and that you can make the right decisions. I just imagine that if we, if the government were really objective about this is what we know, this is what we don't know, this is the evidence, it would place a much higher burden of proof on its coercive policies, and it would make us infinitely more informed to make rational decisions versus being totally opaque, uh, not giving its reasons, having bad reasons and the kind of panic and CYA mentality you mentioned, and then not giving us the basis to the point where you know, I live in a community that has a bunch of elderly people like, why are they, you know, at the beginning of this, they're hanging out at the pool and I don't blame them. I mean, they, they don't, there's not any kind of clear information about what's happening in Orange County, California, and what's the evidence. And it's just, it's just this kind of, oh, there's something really bad going on in Italy, so we should all stop. Or, and then people are like, oh, there's not that much in my area, so I don't know. So I think of it as, yeah, the government is going to use its power responsibly, and its power is ultimately to protect and liberate uh, individuals, not to control and restrict individuals. Any other points you want to make uh, as we wrap up? Anything that, that we've missed or any, any takeaways you want to emphasize? Well, one thing we haven't talked about, and it's part of the issue of the evidence that there's a real panic here, um, if you're wielding coercive power, um, a real government, a better government would think it's not good to be wielding coercive power. I want to wield it in a minimal way. So even if they were using coercive power, it would have been way better to coercively isolate the vulnerable than to use coercion against the whole population. So if they, I mean, I don't think you needed to do this. You could have, if, again, if, if it was much better information sharing. It would have been people much earlier on taking seriously, okay, yeah, there are real vulnerable populations here. So this is not an equal opportunity killer disease. It's uh, if you have certain kinds of conditions, like high blood pressure, diabetes, and if you're elderly, but it's usually elderly goes along with having more of these health conditions uh, as well. If it was, okay, we have to take coercive measures to reduce the load on the hospitals. The more you coercively isolated them, um, you would they're the main source of the huge load on the hospitals. You would not have had to shut down all production and have this incredible destruction. And you would have reduced the load on the hospitals, uh, which was the goal. And so in flattening the curve of getting under this, you could have even done that if you thought, yeah, government has this power, which, as we've been talking, I don't think this is the, the role of the government. But even when it starts using coercion, you don't reach for, OK, we're going to hit everybody over the head. Um, you try to do it as minimally as possible. And the fact that they didn't do that indicates the real panic that it's, okay, we're not going to try to, okay, we have to unfortunately use coercive powers. Let's use the minimal. It was, let's use almost the maximum amount of power we think we can wield, which is shut down everything so nothing happens and there's no more deaths. And so the idea that, that even if your goal is to reduce the load on the hospital system, that's the way to do it is crazy. And it's part of what it, sort of an American reaction to this should be. Yeah, I don't want people dying, 
But the idea that, okay, so it's sort of you're equally going to coerce everybody versus, okay, how do you really reduce the load on the hospitals? And what do you do? That people that don't have enough, yeah, we're all in this together and it's it's nobody can take individual action. There's been too much of that kind of rhetoric that it's good that we're all in the same boat and all being coerced. And it's not good at all. There's no way the government should that its first coercive measure is nobody move. I mean, that that's not legitimate. Yeah, I mean, one way I've thought of it is that from an American perspective, I mean, anything you do to restrict freedom is, is viewed as just very hazardous. And and if you think about catastrophe, and I think of the biggest catastrophe as we're not a free country because then we can't really live our individual lives as we judge best and flourish. So even when you're, even when you're dealing with legitimate threats, you want to think about how can I be minimally coercive with regard to this so that the in individuals have as much freedom of action as possible. And one thing that was striking was just there was no regard for the individual's freedom of action in individual lives. And I, and I agree that this was a particularly striking example because it was so clear that universal, that selective isolation, even if it needed to be coercive, it makes infinitely more sense than universal isolation because that's where the threat is biggest and that's the biggest load on the hospital system. And yet it was just yeah, well, there's a problem, and so we're going to lock everyone down. And there's just no the, the the thing that upsets me most is just there was no concern for the freedom of individuals. I mean, it wasn't even when they're making the calculations, just the individual living his or her life, pursuing his or her happiness, that seemed to have a weighting of essentially zero. It only has a weighting seemingly if you can show, oh, this individual is going to die in the next year or two of suicide, then we care about them. But just hundreds of millions of people being restricted and being less happy, that doesn't seem to matter um, at all. And so uh, any, any other uh, thoughts yeah, before I we wrap up? And on an optimistic note, okay. and it relates to the issue of to get a, the government functioning much better here, it doesn't take, a dramatic overhaul of everything. So it's not, okay, you have to liberate the whole healthcare system and get rid of all these Medicare and so on. Now I'm on for, I mean, we've talked a little bit about that. I think that should be a goal if we want the best government we could have. But to have a government functioning better here, it really, this is a delimited area that you can delimit from other things. So you don't have to, um, change the whole structure of healthcare. This is about infectious disease. And to go back to what we started with, or among the things that we were talking about at the start, is if you had actual law here that was specified, and it was, this is how we think about infectious disease, this is when it rises to the level that government is concerned about it and has to start testing and isolating people. If that were codified into law, and you codified the powers that government has to be able to respond to this. And it doesn't, if you stripped it of the power to, you can't lock down a state. It is not a power you possess. As I said, I'm even dubious about the power you can lock down a city for two weeks, even with a real outbreak. Um, and as I said, the CDC's recommendations, when they are coercive, 
they were limited to school shutdowns and maybe large gatherings. But if you specify this into law, everyone would knew it would know, including government officials. OK, these are the powers we have. And this, so this is what we have to think about. And we're not even thinking about shutting down a whole state because it's not a power we have. And you can delimit this without changing the whole government and getting us back to um, much closer to what the founding fathers instituted uh, in the 18th century and so on. So it's not it's this is doable if we get people involved in this. And I think there's many good people in the infectious disease area and so on. Um, like that in that specialty that can give input on this, you this can be solved in a way that it's it's not okay. You have to convince everybody that med, something's wrong with Medicare, and so there's real for people to be involved here, concerned with it, advocating to their government representatives. Like you need to do something so that government doesn't have the power anymore to have to shut down a whole state and so on. Um, that can be accomplished. And the fact that, for instance, Sweden has better law in regard to this, it's there's a lot of problems with the Swedish government, I think. But you so you can get better law and better specification of government's powers here. But people have to be advocating and demanding this of the government. Um, but you I, a lot of people, I think, can get on board. Like This is a cause that we should advocate for and try to change government in this regard. So the, so there's real reason for optimism if people get involved. Yeah, and I, and I like that, as especially as we think going forward in the next several months, there's all there a lot of policy things are in flux, and I think a definite needed idea is we need real policies on this so we're prepared in advance, including policies where the government is prevented from doing the kinds of very destructive things it, it's done. And I think there will be more and more evidence of how destructive it is. And so I think there's an opportunity. How can, uh, I know you're doing, you know, you're continuing to do work on this. How can people follow your work so they can keep up on this? And then more broadly, how can they get involved in this issue? Um, so yeah, we're doing a lot of stuff at ARI. You can follow us, our YouTube channel. A lot of our videos are going up. We have- So it's the Ayn Rand Institute, just so people know what ARI oh, yeah, is. Sorry. Yeah, Ayn Rand Institute, uh, and if you search for that on YouTube, you'll find our channel. There's a lot of videos going up. We're doing the our more written things right now are appearing in New Ideal, which is a, a um, kind of online digital publication that we have. I think if you just Google New Ideal, it's among the three or four um, top hits in regard to that. Uh, and so, so how to keep up with this and oh, so how to get involved. So I do think this is an issue on which to write your representatives. And here it's really, it's the it's at state, your state representatives, not um, Congress, because it's, it's the governors who have this power right now. If you write to your representatives and say, Look, there's something really wrong that government has this kinds of power. There's a and so again, the reason for optimism is it's you're not just telling government officials you shouldn't be doing anything. I want to take away all your power and so on. It's you should have the power to do this. Your role is to be testing and to be isolating actual carriers of this and so on. And to the extent you're really involved in healthcare, think about how you increase hospital capacity. That's your role. That's the power you should have. 
the power you shouldn't have and the governor shouldn't have and so on is to be able to shut the whole state down. This is a time to contact your representatives and say, okay, this is what happened this time. It can't happen again. And this is what the government's power should be. And this is what it shouldn't be. And so it's not like I'm, it's all I want to do is destroy things or so. I think you can, you can move people on this issue, including politicians on this issue. So part of getting involved is getting involved with your actual representatives and say, look, it has to be better next time. And the only way it can be better next time is if you guys actually pass some laws that will make it better next time. Uh, awesome. Well, maybe one of us or both of us can draft a letter that we can send to people. I think that would actually, that just gave me a, a useful idea. All right, yeah. Ankar. Well, thanks for uh, shedding light on this issue and thanks for all the help uh, in general. Again, if people want to learn more, they can go to AYNRN. I can't believe I almost misspelled Ayn Rand's name. A-Y-N-R-A-N-D dot org. Good to see you. Great, thanks. Hi, everyone. This is just Alex again. Hope you enjoyed that interview. And thanks again to Ankar for coming on the show and for spending two hours sharing his insights. I hope you got a lot from that. I certainly got a lot from that and have gotten a lot from him over the years in general and then uh, recently with this issue in particular. So I want to just give a couple of notes on uh, some big news items this week. Obviously, the main focus this week is what's the proper policy on COVID-19. And one thing to say about that is, I've talked about this a little bit, but is why I'm so focused on this. And I've given a bunch of reasons, but another reason is you just think about from an energy perspective. Usually this is a show about energy production, about what policies are necessary so that we can produce more energy. But right now we're in a state where energy use is under attack. If we're not free, we can't use energy very much and we can't flourish. And if you look at a lot of what's happening in the world in terms of the oil market crashing, for example, which I'll talk about in a second, that's a function of people not being free to use energy. So for that reason, among many, many others, people in the energy world and people interested in energy should be really focused on what is our policy right now. You can't really think about energy policy or a strategy for communicating about it if you're a company without thinking about the imperative of how do we liberate uh, the country. Uh, a few words on the the oil price crash because it's I've talked about this and it's it's gotten worse at least for now. Uh, I know it's a lot of listeners of this show or viewers of this show are from the fossil fuel industry, particularly uh, the oil and gas industry, which at least in the U.S. is uh, much bigger than the coal industry. I also know have a lot of friends and allies in the coal industry, and it's a really difficult situation. It's it's just in general, so many people in the country are suffering right now, and then if you're in the oil business and you're talking about $8 a barrel or negative prices a barrel, it's very, it's, it's very scary. And I just thought I would share, I shared some version of this several weeks ago, but I would just reemphasize, and I've been sharing this on different programs that I've been interviewed on. Here are three fundamental things to keep in mind. And there are things that I keep in mind about the importance of the work that I'm doing and that I hope that you can keep in mind as part of the importance and, and the future of the work that you're doing. So I think of there are three fundamentals that have not changed. A lot of things have changed, but three fundamental truths have not changed. One is low-cost energy is still essential to human flourishing. That's truth one. Two, 
is that fossil fuels are still essential to producing low-cost energy for billions of people. That hasn't changed. And then number three, the benefits of fossil fuels still far outweigh the side effects. So if you think about that, I think it's helpful in just thinking, okay, we need to handle this lockdown situation and liberate people. But once people are liberated, there's a lot that we can't predict. But these fundamentals, I believe, will remain true. And it, it may be even easier to make some of these points as people have more awareness of why we want to preserve and enhance our modern life and why we should be wary of very disruptive changes that make things uh, worse, particularly disruptive changes that come from uh, government. One more story this week because it's, it's uh, April 22nd. It's Earth Day, so I just thought I'd make a quick comment about Earth Day. There's a narr- you know, the general narrative about Earth Day is human beings are making Earth a worse place to live. And my answer to that is no, human beings are making the Earth overall a much better place to live using, uh, you know, using low-cost fossil fuel machine power. We've transformed a world that is naturally, uh, you know, I think of it as dangerous and deficient into a world that is very uh, safe and nourishing and even uh, abundant. So we just live in a much, much better world. And I've talked about how you can look at it from clean water. You can look at it from the perspective of climate mortality. You can look at it from the perspective of opportunity. Just in general, the world is becoming a better and better place to live. We are transforming it overall for the better. So that's my usual perspective. Now, this year, we're hearing the opposite. We're hearing the the correlated idea, which is because industry shutting down, Earth is getting better. And my view is, no, industry shutting down, Earth is becoming a much worse place to live. And there should be something very revealing about how, how we're taught to think of environment and the Earth, that in a period where billions of people are suffering, billions of people's lives have gotten considerably worse, the Earth is described as better. That that clearly means that there's a conception of the earth that's very divorced from or even in contradiction to human flourishing. And I think the key to thinking about all of this is to always be clear on what's our standard of value or our standard of evaluation. How are we evaluating the earth? And if you evaluate the earth by the standard of human flourishing, then fossil fuels and, and industry overall make it much better. And if you uh, if you evaluate it by the standard of minimal human impact or being natural or minimizing change or being green, any of those kinds of anti-impact standards... Yeah, then you then you view a decline in fossil fuels and a decline in industry as a as a good thing leading to a a better earth. So just another reason why we always want to be thinking of everything in terms of human flourishing and we want to be aware when an anti-human perspective an anti-human standard is shaping people's uh, beliefs and shaping the policies they advocate. One more note before Uh, I sign off for this week. I mentioned last week. Now, this applies particularly to those of you who are watching in April and maybe even in May. Uh, At least for now, we still have the offer to double Accelerator contributions. So Accelerator is our program that helps us uh, at 
helps our work at the Center for Industrial Progress, particularly during these very difficult financial times. It helps us invest more in research and development, things like the new Moral Case for Fossil Fuels book, things like uh, you know, new kinds of research. And it also helps us with different kinds of promotional activities, including activities that get me more on television and that help spread our message. So we've had a lot of generosity from accelerators in the last month since we've started talking about it. And then the I mentioned last week, the Prometheus Foundation, founded by businessman Carl Barney, has offered to match the next $25,000 in accelerator contributions. So we got a bunch last week, but we still have plenty of room for more. So if you're considering contributing, now would be a great time because your contribution will be matched and therefore the impact will be doubled. To do that, just go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. Again, that's industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. Okay, that's it for this week. Thanks to those of you who listened to the whole thing. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Easiest way to get on the newsletter and get updates is go to alexepsteinlist.com. And then, of course, you can follow me on all the usual social media channels, including twitter.com slash alexepstein. I'll be back next week. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, there will be a lot of news in the world of energy and in the world of freedom. So I'll be back to talk about it. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.